Section 36 of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report, by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 6, Investigation of Possible Conspiracy, Part 13 Ruby's Activities After Midnight After completing the series of calls to Paul and Wall at 11.48 p.m., Ruby went to the Pago Club, about a ten-minute drive from the Carousel Club. He took a table near the middle of the club, and after ordering a Coke, asked the waitress, in a disapproving tone, "'Why are you open?' When Robert Norton, the club's manager, joined Ruby a few minutes later, he expressed to Ruby his concern as to whether or not it was proper to operate the Pago Club that evening. Ruby indicated that the carousel was closed, but did not criticize Norton for remaining open. Norton raised the topic of President Kennedy's death and said, We couldn't do enough to the person that did this sort of thing. Norton added, however, that Nobody has the right to take the life of another one. Ruby expressed no strong opinion and closed the conversation by saying he was going home because he was tired. Later, Ruby told the commission, he knew something was wrong with me in the certain mood I was in. Ruby testified that he went home after speaking with Norton and went to bed about 1.30 a.m., by that time, George Senator claimed he had retired for the night and did not remember Ruby's return. Eva Grant testified that her brother telephoned her at about 12.45 a.m. to learn how she was feeling. Sunday Morning Ruby's activities on Sunday morning are the subject of conflicting testimony. George Senator believed that Ruby did not rise until 9 or 9.30 a.m., both Ruby and Senator maintained that Ruby did not leave their apartment until shortly before 11 a.m., and two other witnesses have provided testimony which supports that account of Ruby's whereabouts. On the other hand, three WBAP-TV television technicians, Warren Ritchie, John Smith, and Ira Walker, believed they saw Ruby near the police and courts building at various times between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m., but there are substantial reasons to doubt the accuracy of their identifications. None of them had ever seen Ruby on a prior occasion. None looked for an extended period at the man they believed to be Ruby, and all were occupied with their duties and had no reason to remember the man's appearance until they saw Ruby's picture on television. Smith, for one, was not entirely positive about his identification of Ruby as the man he saw, and Ritchie was looking down from atop a TV mobile unit when he observed on the sidewalk the man he believed was Ruby. In addition, Ritchie and Smith provided descriptions of Ruby which differ substantially from information about Ruby gathered from other sources. Smith described the man he saw as being an unkempt person that possibly could have slept with his clothes on. Ruby was characteristically clean and well-groomed. 
In fact, Senator testified that Ruby shaved and dressed before leaving their apartment that morning, and at the time Ruby shot Oswald, he was dressed in a hat and business suit. Ritchie described Ruby as wearing a grayish overcoat, while investigation indicated that Ruby did not own an overcoat and was not wearing one at the time of the shooting. Although Walker's identification of Ruby is the most positive, his certainty must be contrasted with the indefinite identification made by Smith, who had seen the man on one additional occasion. Both Smith and Walker saw a man resembling Ruby when the man on two occasions looked through the window of their mobile news unit and once asked whether Oswald had been transferred. Both saw only the man's head, and Smith was the closer to the window, yet Smith would not state positively that the man was Ruby. Finally, videotapes of scenes on Sunday morning near the NBC van show a man close to the Commerce Street entrance who might have been mistaken for Ruby. George Senator said that when he arose before 9 a.m., he began to do his laundry in the basement of the apartment building while Ruby slept. During Senator's absence, Ruby received a telephone call from his cleaning lady, Mrs. Elnora Pitts, who testified that she called sometime between 8.30 and 9 a.m., to learn whether Ruby wanted her to clean his apartment that day. Mrs. Pitts remembered that Ruby sounded terrible strange to me. She said that there was something wrong with him the way he was talking to me. Mrs. Pitts explained that although she had regularly been cleaning Ruby's apartment on Sundays, Ruby seemed not to comprehend who she was or the reason for her call, and required her to repeat herself several times. As Senator returned to the apartment after the call, he was apparently mistaken for Ruby by a neighbor, Sidney Evans, Jr. Evans had never seen Ruby before, but recalled observing a man resembling Ruby, clad in trousers and a T-shirt, walk upstairs from the washateria in the basement of their building and enter Ruby's suite with a load of laundry. Later in the morning, Malcolm Slaughter, who shared an apartment with Evans, saw an individual similarly clad on the same floor as Ruby's apartment. Senator stated that it was not Ruby's custom to do his own washing and that Ruby did not do so that morning. While Senator was in the apartment, Ruby watched television, made himself coffee and scrambled eggs, and received at 10.19 a.m. a telephone call from his entertainer, Karen Carlin, Mrs. Carlin testified that in her telephone conversation, she asked Ruby for $25, inasmuch as her rent was delinquent and she needed groceries. She said that Ruby, who seemed upset, mentioned that he was going downtown anyway, and that he would send the money from the Western Union office. According to George Senator, Ruby then probably took a half hour or more to bathe and dress. Supporting the accounts given by Mrs. Carlin and Mrs. Pitts of Ruby's emotional state, Senator testified that during the morning, Ruby was even mumbling, which I didn't understand, and right after breakfast he got dressed. Then, after he got dressed, he was pacing the floor from the living room to the bedroom, from the bedroom to the living room, and his lips were going. What he was jabbering, I don't know, but he was really pacing. Ruby has described to the commission his own emotions of Sunday morning as follows. Sunday morning, 
I saw a letter to Caroline, two columns, about a sixteen-inch area. Someone had written a letter to Caroline, the most heartbreaking letter. I don't remember the contents. Alongside that letter, on the same sheet of paper, was a small comment in the newspaper that, I don't know how it was stated, that Mrs. Kennedy may have to come back for the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. I don't know what bug got a hold of me. I don't know what it is, but I am going to tell the truth word for word. I am taking a pill called Preludin. It is a harmless pill, and it is very easy to get in the drug store. It isn't a highly prescribed pill. I use it for dieting. I don't partake of that much food. I think that was a stimulus to give me an emotional feeling that I suddenly felt, which was so stupid, that I wanted to show my love for our faith, being of the Jewish faith, and I never used the term, and I don't want to go into that. Suddenly the feeling, the emotional feeling, came within me that someone owed this debt to our beloved president to save her the ordeal of coming back. I don't know why that came through my mind. Sunday morning trip to police department. Leaving his apartment a few minutes before 11 a.m., Ruby went to his automobile, taking with him his dachshund Sheba and a portable radio. He placed in his pocket a revolver, which he routinely carried in a bank money bag in the trunk of his car. Listening to the radio, he drove downtown, according to his own testimony, by a route that took him past Dealey Plaza, where he observed the scattered wreaths. Ruby related that he noted the crowd that had gathered outside the county jail, and assumed that Oswald had already been transferred. However, when he passed the main street side of the police and courts building, which is situated on the same block as the Western Union office, he also noted the crowd that was gathered outside that building. Normal driving time for the trip from his apartment would have been about 15 minutes. But Ruby's possible haste and the slow movement of traffic through Dealey Plaza make a reliable estimate difficult. Ruby parked his car in a lot directly across the street from the Western Union office. He apparently placed his keys and billfold in the trunk of the car, then locked the trunk, which contained approximately $1,000 in cash, and placed the trunk key in the glove compartment of the car. He did not lock the car doors. With his revolver, more than $2,000 in cash, and no personal identification, Ruby walked from the parking lot across the street to the Western Union office, where he filled out forms for sending $25 by telegraph to Karen Carlin. After waiting in line while one other Western Union customer completed her business, Ruby paid for the telegram and retained as a receipt one of the three time-stamped documents which show that the transaction was completed at almost exactly 11.17 a.m. Central Standard Time. The Western Union clerk who accepted Ruby's order recalls that Ruby promptly turned, walked out of the door onto Main Street, and proceeded in the direction of the police department one block away. The evidence set forth in Chapter 5 indicates that Ruby entered the police basement through the auto ramp from Main Street and stood behind the front rank of newsmen and police officers who were crowded together at the base of the ramp awaiting the transfer of Oswald to the county jail. As Oswald emerged from a basement office at approximately 11.21 a.m., Ruby moved quickly forward 
and without speaking fired one fatal shot into Oswald's abdomen before being subdued by a rush of police officers. Evaluation of Activities Examination of Ruby's activities immediately preceding and following the death of President Kennedy revealed no sign of any conduct which suggests that he was involved in the assassination. Prior to the tragedy, Ruby's activities were routine, though persons who saw him between November 22nd and 24th disagree as to whether or not he appeared more upset than others around him, his response to the assassination appears to have been one of genuine shock and grief. His indications of concern over the possible effects of the assassination upon his businesses seem consistent with other evidence of his character. During the course of the weekend, Ruby seems to have become obsessed with the possibility that the impeach Earl Warren sign and the Bernard Weissman ad were somehow connected and related to the assassination. However, Ruby's interest in these public notices was openly expressed, and as discussed below, the evidence reveals no connection between him and any political organization. Examination of Larry Crayford's sudden departure from Dallas shortly before noon on November 23rd does not suggest that Ruby was involved in a conspiracy. To be sure, Crayford started hitchhiking to Michigan, where members of his family lived, with only $7 in his pocket. He made no attempt to communicate with law enforcement officials after Oswald's death, and a relative in Michigan recalled that Crayford spoke very little of his association with Ruby. When finally located by the FBI six days later, he stated that he left Ruby's employ because he did not wish to be subjected to further verbal abuse by Ruby, and that he went north to see his sister, from whom he had not heard in some time. An investigation of Crayford's unusual behavior confirms that his departure from Dallas was innocent, after Oswald was shot, FBI agents obtained from the Carousel Club an unmailed letter drafted by Crayford to a relative in Michigan at least a week before the assassination. The letter revealed that he was considering leaving Dallas at that time. On November 17th, Crayford, who had been receiving only room, board, and incidental expenses, told Ruby he wanted to stop working for him. However, Crayford agreed to remain when Ruby promised him a salary. Then on the morning of November 23rd, Ruby and Crayford had a minor altercation over the telephone. Although Crayford did not voluntarily make known to the authorities his associations with Ruby, he spoke freely and with verifiable accuracy when he was questioned. The automobile driver who provided Crayford his first ride from Dallas has been located, his statement generally conforms with Crayford's story, and he did not recall any unusual or troubled behavior by Crayford during that ride. Although Crayford's peremptory decision to leave Dallas might be unusual for most persons, such behavior does not appear to have been uncommon for him. His family residence had shifted frequently among California, Michigan, and Oregon, during his 22 years, he had earned his livelihood picking crops, working in carnivals, and taking other odd jobs throughout the country. According to his testimony, he had previously hitchhiked across the country with his then-wife and two infant children. 
Against such a background, it is most probable that the factors motivating Crayford's departure from Dallas on November 23rd were dissatisfaction with his existence in Ruby's employ, which he had never considered more than temporary, Ruby's decision to close his clubs for three days, the argument on Saturday morning, and his own desire to see his relatives in Michigan. There is no evidence to suggest any connection between Crayford's departure and the assassination of the president or the shooting of Oswald. The allegations of Wanda Helmick raised speculation that Ruby's Saturday night phone calls to Ralph Paul and Breck Wall might have concerned the shooting of Oswald, but investigation has found nothing to indicate that the calls had conspiratorial implications. Paul was a close friend, business associate, and advisor to Jack Ruby. Ruby normally kept in close telephone contact with Paul, who had a substantial sum of money committed to the Carousel Club. Paul explained that Ruby called him Saturday evening once to point out his ads, another time to say that nobody seemed to be doing any business in downtown Dallas, and a third time to relate that both he and his sister were crying over the assassination. Between two of those phone calls to Paul, Ruby telephoned to Galveston, Texas, to speak with Wall, a friend and former business associate who was an official of the American Guild of Variety Artists. Wall related that during that call, Ruby criticized the Weinsteins for failing to close their clubs. Having earlier made the same complaint to Lawrence Myers, to whom he mentioned a need to do something about this, it would have been characteristic for Ruby to want to direct Breck Wall's attention, as an AGVA official, to what he regarded as the Weinsteins' improper conduct. The view that the calls to Wall and Paul could have had conspiratorial implications also is belied in large measure by the conduct of both men before and after the events of November 22nd through 24th. A check of long-distance telephone records reveals no suspicious activity by either man. Paul, in fact, is not known to have visited Dallas during the weekend of the assassination, except to appear openly in an effort to arrange counsel for Ruby within a few hours of the attack on Oswald. Neither the FBI nor the CIA has been able to provide any information that Ralph Paul or Breck Wall ever engaged in any form of subversive activity. Moreover, Mrs. Helmick's reliability is undermined by her failure to report her information to any investigative official until June 9, 1964, although a sister-in-law confirms that Mrs. Helmick wrote her something about a gun shortly after the shooting, the only mention of any statement by Paul, which was included in a letter written by Mrs. Helmick after the Ruby trial, was that Paul believed Ruby was not in his right mind. No corroborating witness named by Mrs. Helmick has been found who remembers the conversations she mentioned. Both Ruby and Paul have denied that anything was said, as Mrs. Helmick suggests, about a gun or an intent to shoot Oswald, and Wall has stated that Ruby did not discuss such matters with him. Even if Mrs. Helmick is accurate, the statements ascribed to Paul indicate only that he may have heard of a possible reference by Ruby to shooting Oswald. According to her, Paul's response was to exclaim, Are you crazy? 
but under no circumstances does the report of Mrs. Helmick or any other fact support a belief that Paul or Wall was involved in the shooting of Oswald. The Commission has conducted an investigation of the telephone call Ruby received from Karen Carlin at 10.19 Sunday morning to determine whether that call was prearranged for the purpose of conveying information about the transfer of Oswald or to provide Ruby an excuse for being near the police department. The Commission has examined the records of long-distance telephone calls on Sunday morning for Jack Ruby, the Carlins, the Dallas police, and several other persons, and has found no sign of any indirect communication to Ruby through Mr. or Mrs. Carlin, no other evidence showing any link between the Carlins and the shooting of Oswald has been developed. End of section 36. Recording by Maria Casper.